I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, the layperson's guide to enjoying music's benefits. With all those Christmas gifts open last month, I'm guessing a fair amount of you listeners' children got some kind of video game or gaming device as a gift. And let's be honest, I imagine a lot of you adult listeners received some kind of video game or gaming device or claim you got one for your kids and it's really for you. How would you like to make the legitimate claim that some of that gaming time has educational value? With me today to help you out with that is Dr. Ryan Thompson, professor at Michigan State University's Game Design and Development Program. This program was founded in 2005 and has grown leaps and bounds into the highest ranked public university for game design and development by the Princeton Review. In the past few years, the university has created multiple award-winning games, including 2019's When Rivers Were Trails. Dr. Thompson teaches video game history, video game audio, and audio programming as part of the game development faculty. Welcome to the show, Dr. Thompson. Hi, thank you for having me. I am not a gamer, full disclosure, but even for someone like me who never plays video games, when I hear this YouTube clip of the Mario Brothers theme song, there's a response. I've got to imagine that the music and its sound effects are a huge part of a successful video game. Talk to us a little bit about the role music plays in a game, the impact of music on a game. How important is it? Just like in film, uh, the effect of music on any multimedia enterprise is tremendous. Uh, I could talk for a whole semester about, <laughs> about that. But it's interesting you bring up the Mario theme song. One of the trends I've noticed is that as video games become free from the limitations of technology, uh, the clip you just played for Mario, you're limited to three voices at once. Uh, the 1980s hardware just could not do more than that. Okay. Whereas modern games have the whole orchestra. I mean, we have, just like everyone else, we have DVD quality audio now. And so it's been fun as somebody born in the 1980s, kind of riding the wave of uh, the generation who grew up alongside video game history, it's been fun to explore what that means in terms of musical creative potential as we get more and more options as time progresses. Mm -hmm. I imagine there's been kind of an explosion and of development in that field at some point in time. Every new big hardware release, uh, the Nintendo in the 1980s, which of course is a new starting point after the Atari generation of the 1970s, which is blips and bloops, and you couldn't produce a whole chromatic scale on the Atari. Uh, then you get, for lack of a better way to say it, the ability to do music in the way that we understand what tonal music means on the Nintendo. And then you get, instead of just waveforms, you get actual sampled sounds that you could identify, oh, this is attempting to be a trumpet sound. This sounds like strings on the Super Nintendo. Mm. And then when we get CD quality audio on the PlayStation, of course, like everybody else again, we have the full potential range of not just orchestral sounds, but all sorts of synthesized and electronic sounds, the sorts of things you would hear from like a Trent Reznor score to the social network okay. in terms of a film. That's not necessarily all notated in sheet music, and it doesn't all fit within a Western orchestral worldview per se, but it's all modern music in the sense that we understand music to exist everywhere today. Okay. Now, I'm told by my sources, this is 
piano students of mine <laughs> who do play okay. video games. I'm told that most video games do not have, the music does not have lyrics. Talk to us a little bit about the role of lyrics or keeping lyrics out of video game music. So for the non-gamers who will listen to this as part of your audience, think of how often lyric pieces are used in a film score as your basis for comparison. So just like in games, once we reach a certain technological threshold again, they exist, but because the purpose of film music and the purpose of game music is not always to be foregrounded and listened to per se, you know, you have to do things like duck dialogue in film. You also have to do things like help guide the player through action and activity in video games. When you say duck dialogue, what do you mean by that? Let's say you're watching a film and you've got two characters speaking to each other. In the context of the film as a whole, it's much more important to hear what those two characters are saying than it is to hear the background music that they're speaking over. Sure. Uh, this is very common in film post-production where they will artificially manipulate the volume of recorded tracks so that it lowers in a way that allows and facilitates the understanding of the dialogue or the sound effects mm. in film. Okay. And we as music editors and people who have post-processing tools have an infinite variety of ways we can process and work with that to make certain elements pop out, right? So you can hear the dialogue in your film. Okay. The same sorts of things happen in video games, but there, there are some different considerations as well, one of which is I have the ability at any time to put down my controller and go make a sandwich, for instance. And so I decide when the action moves forward, as opposed to in a film, time is fixed, right? Like I can describe to you a certain moment, uh, one hour, 30 minutes and eight seconds into a film will mm -hmm. always be the same moment. Okay. Right. Whereas I can't describe like, we'll say generously that you would take slightly longer to finish the same Mario stage than I would. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I can't just say, oh, listen for, you know, 15 minutes into playing Mario, you'll be hearing this music. Okay. Right? I can't necessarily do that because right. maybe we'll be on different stages, right, which have different music. And so there's other considerations at hand. Uh, but in terms of getting around and highlighting certain things, just like in film, the music has to facilitate the experience. It's not just being listened to in the way that we would listen to a concert score. And so when you have lyrics, historically in film, that's usually reserved for a moment when we want to take the time to highlight the music. Okay. One of the more famous pop film, if you will, music pieces with lyrics is John Williams' Duel of the Fates in Star Wars Episode One. The fight with Darth Maul at the end of the film has this cool chant piece associated with it. Oh. And we hear the chorus come in, and the human voice is relatively rare in film score. It calls attention to itself in a way that, like, strings don't, for instance partly because you can readily separate people speaking over the sound of strings playing or a jazz band playing in the background. Think of the Mos Eisley Cantina sequence, for instance. Yeah, well, and that's a different part of the brain, probably, that's processing words and language versus melody. Right. But for that reason, and you're right, there's all sorts of cognitive research that goes into this as well. Moments with lyrics call attention to the music. And so your game designer or your film composer has to want that at that particular time. As a result, there are a few times, or it's always marked when it occurs, right? So in Assassin's Creed, when you hear the sea shanties, usually they sing during the travel just as a means to facilitate and create background noise. There's relatively little dialogue that's extremely important to the ongoing plot and narrative. They're just creating the mood and the environment as you go. Okay. 
a real commonplace for a piece with lyrics in both mediums is the closing credits. Mm, sure. So if you hear, for instance, the score to the first Avengers film, which is a really great Alan Silvestri score. Uh, he's done a ton of stuff, including the recent Avengers Endgame as well. There's no real vocal piece of music until the closing credits start to roll. And then we get this cool Chris Cornell piece of music where the lyrics kind of speak to the events of the film. And this, you know, it's a very common way to end a film score. It, and okay. video games do that type of thing as well. It's rarer to have a voiced piece during the game, again, because then it calls so much attention to itself. Okay. Uh, there's a couple times, really quickly, that it does happen, especially when the character is singing, then we can get a piece maybe where we hear that rather than just have to imagine it in our in our heads. Mm, okay. What was the first video game music that did have lyrics? I think the first piece with lyrics is not actually the same piece as the first piece in video games to feature the human voice, which is weird to oh, say. Okay, sure. But again, I spoke to those limitations of technology. Yeah. Uh, on the Super Nintendo, there's a very, very famous video game in terms of game history things, uh, called Final Fantasy VI. It was released here as Final Fantasy III in North America uh, due to a weird Japan versus North America getting different releases at different times. Oh. But it features a 15-minute fully staged opera that the player must participate in. You have to read the libretto and memorize the lines oh. and choose the appropriate lines from certain dialogue boxes at the right time to get your character, the opera singer, to progress and successfully perform this opera. Now, the catch is all of this occurs on a Super Nintendo early 1990s sound with all synthesized sampled sounds. So you hear like something between a flute and a sine wave sound that we are meant to understand as the human voice. And it comes up uh, as this melody plays and it it effectively, for lack of a better term, sings it to you. Uh, The character like opens her digital mouth and out comes noise, right? (laughs) And for each note we see subtitles come out on the screen with text. So it's a pretty easy leap to understand each of those pitches representing lyrics and words. Okay. Uh, that's the first I can think of. Okay. Is on the Super Nintendo. The first piece with a human singer takes a little while longer until we have CD-ROM technology. Will Gibbons actually writes about this. He's a scholar at TCU in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He writes about this. It's a video game called Lunar Silver Star Story complete. It's a lot of S's to get out on a microphone (laughs) at once. But it features this woman who receives magical power from the world, and that magical power gets transmitted through the form of song. And so there are certain cutscenes where we see her singing, and for the first time, we actually have a human voice representing the character as the story unfolds and progresses. Okay. Oh, interesting. Now, there's kind of a fine line between music video game music and sound effects how is the gamer affected physiologically by the music and its sound effects in the game like uh i imagine there's certain heart rate that can change breathing oxygen blood pressure stress you know how are those things affected by music and its sound effects i'll start With sound effects, because I think that's a little bit more immediately apparent, and then transition into music really quickly. Okay. Sound effects, just like in film, kind of jar the audience, right? If you hear a big explosion, it calls your attention to something. Mm -hmm. And when the referent is present and everything works the way it's supposed to, then you understand what's going on. The sound effect creates clarity for the viewer or the player. 
there are times when we purposely obscure that. Maybe you need to hear something that occurred off camera, if you will, and you don't find out what actually occurred until a couple moments later. Uh, this occurs in both film and games, right? Somebody dies off camera, you hear a scream, and you're like, oh my gosh, what has happened? Mm, okay. As the viewer, the scream is a sound effect at that point, right? Mm -hmm. The same types of things apply to video games, except that now that we operate in modern 3D environments, uh, think a first-person shooter, your Call of Duty's Overwatch-type games with, where you control the camera, positional audio becomes much more important. And we have a number of ways in code, kind of beyond the scope, I think, of uh, to get into the sure. weeds, details of, of how that's done. Uh -huh. we, we can position that. I'm wearing headphones right now, and I can have that come out of my right ear. I can have that come out of my left ear. I can subtly hint via a couple tricks that that's coming above or below the player's field of vision slash hearing. I've got a lot of control over position that most film goers don't have because you've just got a left and a right speaker, which is oh, okay. a totally different environment than like me next to my laptop game. Sure. So when you're designing these games and the audio for it, you can design the direction that these different sounds are coming to the gamer. Yes. Uh, there's one game in particular. It's pretty old now, but it's still kind of my go-to example for this being done really well. And it uses music, not sound effects, to do it. So that'll be my transition into talking about music. Okay. There's a zombie shooter game called Left for Dead. And it has a sequel as well, but either game. Mm -hmm. Where you have to just fight hordes of zombies and in this first-person shooter environment. You know, you're blasting zombies with this gun. And every once in a while, special types of zombies... Keep in mind, we have like game elements at play. Okay. We'll spawn into the environment. And a different piano motive will play for each type of special zombie. And if you imagine yourself in a 3D space, imagine an office building, for instance, I can program the sound to come and emanate not directly to the player's headphones, but from a source within the environment. And as a result, I have specific positional control and because each zombie has a different motive, then I've got what I'll call motivic control over what type and location of each zombie spawning into the environment. So if I listen to the music, I'll know both what I'm fighting in advance and where it's going to be coming from, which gives me a huge gameplay advantage over somebody that doesn't have sound. Yeah. As a game developer, you probably have access to a lot of science on how different sounds create adrenaline or stimulate those reward centers in our brains. I remember having a student, uh, he and his sister were both at, at a lesson and they were allowed to play a, their little handheld device while the other was having the lesson. And so he had, his sister had a lesson while he was playing his game and then he turned it off and she went and played the game while he sat down and had his lesson. And when he first sat down, he could still kind of hear what she was doing with opening up this game. And he made some comment about, I'm just listening for that sound. And it was like a little ping or something that he was listening for when she kind of achieved that first point or something like that. And I thought it was kind of interesting that he recognized that it was that little ping that he was listening for that really gave him some kind of a reward or really got caught his attention. Yeah, there's a lot of that type of stuff that we get trained pretty readily on. You know, the sounds of success or the sounds of failure. Yeah. Uh, in terms of mood and what music can do, there's a lot of location as genre activity that happens 
in video games that I think happens more in video games than it does in film. Uh, we could make certain assumptions. If I played a very pastoral piece for you from a film score, let's say The Shire from The Lord of the Rings, right? We're probably not fighting. Sure. Right? Uh, it sounds like we're at home. And there are, are reasons in music theory why that is the case, right? We kind of are revolving around a tonic chord and a pentatonic mode, right? Mm-hmm. We could get it, we could explain that along those lines. Uh, I think video games, because there's only so many genres of game and only so many combinations of notes, there are certain trends that have kind of been handed down over the years that are slowly developed into expectations. For instance, water levels are often in triple meter. I don't know why that's the case, but it is. It starts with Super Mario Brothers. If you go back to the original Nintendo game, it's a waltz, right? Okay. And that creates this bobbing, floating sense in a way that when water was just the color blue as the background... The music kind of steps in and helps us feel waves when waves didn't yet exist technologically in the video game. Okay. Uh, And that trend has continued. Even in modern video games with full orchestral palette available, there's a long-form role-playing game on the Nintendo 3DS uh, that's getting a sequel now on Switch I hear next year, which will be fun, Uh, but Bravely Default, which is kind of this inheritor of Final Fantasy's legacy in terms of its content and programming. You hear this big march-like theme when you're on the overworld. And when you're in the boat, that theme gets converted from a 4-4 piece of music that's a march to a 3-4 waltz Mm. when you're floating along in the water. And so there's a lot of those types of trends that can be traced over time that stick around to help generate mood. So now we just collectively kind of understand that triple meter is a signifier of water. It doesn't always mean that, but it's one of those clues you can hone in on. Okay. What about the the sounds that stimulate those reward centers, whether it's for success or failure? How do you decide where to put those and when and what sounds to use that are really going to connect with people? Ooh, that's a tough question. Uh, There's different means of approach for all sorts of different budgets and for all sorts of different sound palettes, right? Am I in an orchestral game? Am I in an electronic game? Like, what's going on? Uh, But generally speaking... If the state of the game changes completely, and success and failure are changes of state, right? You're no longer playing in either case. Then you want some sort of musical cadence figure to kind of wrap up the activity. Okay. If you were to look at this from the sense of Western European orchestral music, we have all sorts of ways to signify success, and we have ways to signify kind of failure and loss and grief as well. And we can adapt those, especially if we're working in an orchestral model, a big grand 5-1 cadence mm-hmm. in a major key is probably more success than it is failure. Sure. And again, I don't know why exactly this is the case, but it seems more common in video games relative to other media. There's a flat 6, flat 7, 1 cadence in a lot of video games that seems to signify success. That's used more often than 5-1. It's used in Super Mario Bros. 1. Uh, the Final Fantasy victory theme across all 13 games uses that chord progression to signify victory. I don't know why. Again, it's just one of those things that we kind of understand, that chromatic median progression works. What about during the game? As you're playing, how would you characterize sounds that really trigger 
the brain. Again, it depends on what we're going for, right? Like if we're playing a long-form role-playing game where the soundtrack is like 75 tracks, it's a four-disc soundtrack, then maybe we have eight or nine exploration pieces as we're exploring the land, uh, hiking, picking flowers, doing non-combative things. You know, we come over, we get this beautiful vista view of the mountaintop. Then that sort of music has to be different than aggressive combat music. Mm-hmm. In this, again, in the same way as it is for a film score, right? Mm-hmm. The interesting part for me is not what the music does differently, but how do we transition in and out of those states? And that's something technology has improved upon significantly. If you play a game from 2002, the orchestral writing might still be this lush, beautiful orchestral writing. Uh, everybody, ha- again, had DVD technology by then. So you get this pastoral orchestral sound, And let's say you fight a tiny animal. You can kill it in one stroke. You've been playing for like 40 hours at this point. You're a good (laughs) character. And I mean that in the sense not that you are mechanically gifted, but the numbers that underpin and govern your character are significantly better than they were when you started the game. So instead of having a real fight, you just dispatch this foe with a single stroke and then you get back to your exploring. In 2002, the music would have cut to combat music because the instant you swipe at an enemy, it's like, oh my gosh, combat, we'd better play the combat track now. In 2019, we have a more nuanced, layered response to that where we say, is he really in combat or did he just swing his sword once? We don't need to disturb the exploration activity if he's not in actual combat danger. And we have new ways to, that interacts between audio systems and the game's code. We can access that in a more powerful way today than we could 15 years ago. Okay. You're a musician as well. You sing with other musicians to create remixes of video game music as part of Overclocked Remix. Tell us a little bit about Overclocked Remix. Oh, it's such a great community. Uh, Overclocked Remix is a nonprofit website dedicated to the promotion of video game music as an art form, which I'll note is a mission that's largely been accomplished today. Uh, Just like film music 30 years ago, in the academy was thought of as kind of crass, not serious music. Video games through the 2000s and late 90s went through their own battle with that, where, you know, this is a lowbrow form of entertainment. This is not for academic culture study. Comic books did the same type of thing in the 1950s, right? Today we take comic books a lot more seriously than we did back then. Video games have kind of matured in the same sorts of ways, And groups like Overclocked Remix have been promoting that idea for some time. And again, I'll argue to some success today. How long has Overclocked been around? Uh, It was founded in 1999. Oh. Kind of like the beginnings of the modern internet. Yeah. And they have been routinely publishing material since then. They're up to a little bit over 4,000 pieces of music available for free and I think just shy of 80 full-length albums on top of that. Wow. And those are available to stream for free, to download for free? Uh, Yes, to both. Both. Oh, interesting. Is it possible to distill into just like 30 to 60 seconds what the process looks like of creating the music and sound effects for a video game? Does that happen in conjunction with the video game being created? Does it, is it added afterwards? It's very much akin to a film. You'll be told, I need X pieces of music and it's going to cover about X amount of footage. 
you kind of it gets inserted as part of the end of the development cycle in most cases. Okay, so at this point, you're looking at uh, visual to try to get a feel for is this kind of like a, an old Renaissance era type thing? Is this a fun, perky type of a mood, you know, to get the mood for the music? Right. And you might be told we need like a heroic theme. And so you understand that to work in the context of, say, Aaron Copeland's fanfare for the common man and John Williams' Superman theme. Okay. Well, maybe they want something like that. So you write something like that and then you tailor it as needed. Okay. The sound effects, usually you're provided an asset list. The game designers know, for instance, there's only, say, four ways you can swing a sword. Therefore, I need four sword slash effects. Oh. Right? Or there's only so many items and interactions in the game. There's going to be a mathematical limit to the number of sound effects that they can put in the game. And that's determined by needs of budget and time in the okay. same way that a film score does. Right. Okay. And do you come up with those sound effects to kind of go along with the music? Not directly in terms of making sure, for instance, certain notes and sounds line up. Uh, In the same way, the lightsaber sound effect in Star Wars has little to do with the score. Okay. Most sound effects have little to do with the music as well. Okay. Uh, First party Nintendo games tend to be an exception to this rule. If you go back to Mario 1, way back in the 1980s, the coin sound effect is in the key of the overworld music in Super Mario Mm. Bros. And that's done intentionally to keep you in the moment. Okay. Okay. Well, I ask all of my guests to give listeners what I call an improv, which is a try this at home, a hack, an experiment that will enhance listeners' lives with music. Do you have a suggestion for us today? Yes, I do. Uh, And my suggestion is to take a piece of video game music uh, and go listen to it. And if you are in need of a suggestion... Let me please suggest anything by the composer for Final Fantasy, Nobu Uematsu, or Koji Kondo, who writes most of the music for the Mario and Zelda titles on the Nintendo platforms. Once you've heard the piece as it's originally written, make your way over to Overclocked Remix at ocremix.org, search for that piece of music on the website, and listen to it in a completely different arrangement, a different genre, a different set of instruments. Maybe they've added vocals and lyrics to the piece. Maybe they've made a ragtime piece out of a rock anthem Mm -hmm. or the other direction. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to me to hear how these pieces can be recontextualized and understood in various ways. Yeah. I just did a quick look around there, and I'm looking forward to going back. But there is so much on there. I mean, Zelda, there's stuff from... Uh, in fact, I'm going to include a link to the Fistful of Dollars one, which was fun. And that's for my dad. That, yeah, so that piece is produced by uh, industry composer Andrew Aversa, who got his start making music for Overclocked Remix and transitioned in being a professional full-time composer and game designer. Oh, interesting. And if you play that Fistful of Dollars, or sorry, Fistful of Nickels piece, it is a reference to the soundtracks of Ennio Morricone from Westerns of Yore. Yeah. And... The original piece has some of those reference in it, but he dials that all the way up to 11. You can hear like almost some gratuitous references that you can tell he's having a lot of fun <laughs> when he's writing this piece of music out. Now, one thing I want to point out really quickly that I wanted to make sure to say is that one of the things that differs between how we traditionally understand music for those of us coming from classical music backgrounds, and that's my world too for what it's worth. Mm. My degree is musicology. Okay. And so... We tend to understand music as the written page. Mm -hmm. For film and video game scores, that's not necessarily the case. That piece of music, for instance, has no written sheet music. Okay. It's all done electronically in the digital audio workstation. 
Okay. Well, and some of my students have requested to play video game theme songs, and it can be tricky to find a good piano arrangement of it. And that's that's why. Yes, and doing transcription work can often be difficult I imagine. Uh, for these types of things. And we have access to tricks that humans can't do. I can tell the computer to play notes every 60th of a second, for mm. instance. Sure. And I don't have that level of specificity with a student, right? You can't count 1 60th yep. of a second. Yeah. You might be able to play 30-second notes, but even that, you're going to reach human limitations of performance long before the computer runs out of juice. Sure, right. <laughs> Well, how can listeners connect with you and find out more about your work, find out more about MSU's program and connect with you? Anybody interested in Michigan State's efforts in game development, uh, esports, or game audio, you can go to gamedev.msu.edu and look at what we're doing there. Uh, My email is on the faculty list page there. I'm also very active on Twitter as at Bardic Knowledge, uh, which is my simultaneous music and gaming reference obviously there's the music thing but also it's an old dungeons and dragons skill name ah i figured there must be some kind of a story behind that (laughs) that handle great well i'll include those links in the show notes and also links related to your improv uh, with that overclocked remix site and some of the composers that you recommended. I ask all of my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, a coda, by sharing a song or story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Do you have anything to tell us about today? Yeah, I do. Uh, my first academic publication was on this opera, Final Fantasy VI, and a couple of years ago, when Overclocked Remix released an entire album that... Uh, fan arrangements of all 70 pieces from this game across two or three CDs, I got invited to participate in one of them. And so I will link you guys this piece of music from that opera sequence I talked about earlier, uh, the arrangements entitled The Nightmare Oath, where I am the second vocalist on the track uh, as the part of the villain. I was in graduate school at Minneapolis at the time. Yay, Minneapolis. (laughs) Oh, I miss the Twin Cities every day. They told me when I moved there I would develop Shangri-La syndrome when I finally left and, like, always think of it as the perfect place. Oh, really? That is is absolutely the case. Uh, Uh, Well, I I grew (laughs) up... Fantastic. Yeah, we kind of discovered we have shared geographic locations. I grew up in Michigan, not too far from where you are. I grew up in Grand Rapids and now live in Minneapolis. And, you know, one thing I have to say I noticed right away after moving to Minneapolis is we see the sun in the winter. (laughs) Right, and here you don't, basically. Yeah. So I was like, you know, it's really cold out there, but it's sunny and it just doesn't seem as gloomy and cold and and dark. Oh, I know. Yeah, you guys are lucky over there. (laughs) Uh, The arranger for this piece of music, and most of Overclocked Remix's collaborations happen across the internet, so you don't meet face to face. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the way the modern world works in many ways, right? Yeah. The arranger for this song is a guy who lives in Shakopee, Minnesota, just Mm -hmm. an hour south of where I was. And so... He was like, hey, why don't you just come on down and sing for me in person instead of recording it? Oh, cool. And so I got to meet uh, Andrew Lors, one of the site staffers of who helps run Overclocked Remix, and got to be more integrated into that community directly than I otherwise would have, and had an absolute blast singing for him and being a part of this piece of music. So I hope you guys enjoy it.
for joining me today. Next week's episode will feature Dr. Nina Krause discussing how being a musician, amateur or otherwise, affects your ability to pick up on others' emotional cues. If you enjoy the show and have not yet subscribed, tap the subscribe, follow, or plus button on whatever podcast app you use to conveniently receive new episodes when they release. Show notes for today's episode are located at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast slash episode 26. While you're there, I'd love to hear from you. Connect with me by leaving a comment at the bottom of the show notes. Email me at mindy at mpetersonmusic.com or connect with me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook with the handle at Enhanced Life Music. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Until next week, may your life be enhanced with music.